How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 41. Woohoo! Some 41. Hey! Oh, the small, small things. things. And I don't know the rest of the words of that song. How are you, Jake? <laughs> I'm good. I actually had this very discussion on another podcast I guest starred on, which, you know what, I might actually bring up in the career later, but we did talk about... Uh, specifically Psalm 41 and trying to remember lyrics that we don't actually know. Really? Yeah. I've, I've always know. found that uh, I don't know any of those, like, like what is it, Stacey's mum, right. Jesse's um, girl. Uh, uh, the, br- brighter, the Bright Side. Not bright uh, side. Yeah, I don't even know. There's something to do with the is drag. Is that the name of the song? And Coming Out of a Cage. And right, I was just doing I'll be doing just, just fine. fine, yeah. So that's it, about it. That's about it. And the I rest think, of it when you're like, in a club, <laughs> when you're in a club, though, mm-hmm. everyone just magically learns it on the spot. Yeah. Do you notice I, that? Yeah, because like everyone, everyone knows. maybe it's just the sound that everyone, f- it feels like everyone knows the words, but right. they don't. It's like Wonderwall. I don't even know all the words to Wonderwall. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. We're not singing any of these, by the way. Yeah, no, no, no. We're not, this isn't a musical podcast. This is a movie podcast. Isn't Have that right? Have done a musical yet? Oh, um. So this is the, uh, no. I want to say yes, but no. <laughs> no, we haven't. <laughs> I'm going to do a quick I fact mean, Rocket check on Man that. sort of sits in the middle, but it wasn't, once again, it, it wasn't, wasn't even our main, yeah, a title episode. Week. A title episode, I like that. Yeah, it was um, it was just a ten minute discussion. I'm gonna bring up the previous episodes on my very, very, very slap laptop and That's see okay. if okay. Uh, I can probably get mine up a little quicker. But probably. anyway, Jake, how have you been? I've been all right. We're in the trenches. We're just about finished our uni course. Oh, I'm so happy. Just about. I think after these last couple of weeks, I'm just ready to be done with this, and I'm so mm. excited to have basically almost a whole month of just focusing basically on this podcast. Yeah, that's. Pretty and much, just yeah. That's going awesome. back to watching films recreationally for <laughs> fun. It's so exciting. There's yeah. so many things coming out soon that I'm so excited for. You know what I found out last week as well? Well, this thing loads. So obviously we did our director's corner on Once Upon a Time in the West. Yes, we did. And I found out because um, I was talking about how I found it a little tricky. Not that I was like desperately looking, but I found it really hard to find other films that Leon has done. Mm. And then. I found out four of his films are on Stan. Really? Yeah, just sitting there. So the good, the bad, the ugly, and all like just they're all on Stan. That's crazy. I was like, I wish I knew that because <laughs> I have Stan. No, that's fair. But, that's fair. Oh well. Have you watched any of them? Um, no, I didn't watch any of those this week. Mm-hmm. I didn't watch a bunch of other stuff. I'm still trying to load the. You know what? I give up. The, I'm pretty sure we didn't do a musical. We still have not done a musical. I've just checked. Oh, there you go. However, yeah. I did watch a musical this week. Oh, fancy. Yeah. What did you watch? Um, so I have... Um, so Sarah doesn't watch a lot of movies, like next right. to no movies. Like, say a movie... A how, do you, how do you manage? Uh, <laughs> how do you do well, it? Well, it's, it's like a you know, it's like a blank canvas, right? You can just... <laughs> uh, a blank cinema canvas where yeah. you can just be like... So, for example, I'm going to give you like three films mm. and... I'm going to play a game with you, Jake. Whoa. I'm going to give you three films, and you okay. have to guess which one of them she hasn't seen. Okay. That's a fun game. So Behind her back. <laughs> no, no, because she listens. So she does listen to the I'm show. not going to get in too much trouble, I don't think, for this. So you've <laughs> got... Are you okay? I'm just, I'm just I'm like, hopefully we don't get into too much trouble. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. So uh, The Ugly Truth, mm. Ghosts of Girlfriend's Past... And the Shawshank Redemption. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm afraid to answer because I, I feel like I, I definitely know the answer. It just makes me cry. Is it um, the Shawshank Redemption? It is the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, now, we didn't watch the Shawshank Redemption this week, but I'm sure hopefully we will watch it in the coming weeks. That's uh, got to be required viewing. Surely. She also hasn't watched Lord of the Rings. Or I haven't some... watched Lord of the Rings either. That's... Okay, we need to do a Lord of the Rings episode. We'll get to it. We'll oh. get to it. There's so many movies out there, man. Anyway. 41 we... in. I managed to watch... <laughs> uh, we watched the live recording of the 25th anniversary of The Phantom of the Opera. Okay. And... This was shot in Royal Albert Hall, and I don't. I have brought up musical content. Uh, we've brought up stand-up comedy before, mm. musical performances, but this one in particular I found interesting, and I wanted to address it because we've always talked about live broadcasts and sort of how that meshes almost. But the way that this right, one was yeah. shot, this 25th anniversary shot, it was almost felt at points like I was watching a movie. Okay. The amount of camera coverage... I was going to say, how many cameras would you I'm talking say? like maybe 10, 12 cameras. Woo-hoo. It was insane, Jake. Like, the, the the amount of coordination and, like, the intercutting of shots... Right. It, it, it wasn't a simple, like, broadcasting a musical, mm. like, performance it, or, a, or a band playing. It was very much like they knew exactly the cue points in which they wanted to cut to to get... They had really good close-up shots of mm. actors... At, like the stage performers performing, and yeah, it was just like it was really like the first time I'd watched it, just listening to just the music, enjoying the musical. But this time, obviously, shall You're we watching the, the first visual, time? Yeah. I'm watching more the visuals, and I was just blown away by the amount of coverage in this. I mean, Royal Albert Hall, iconic theater, pretty big. I think it's like I can't remember the attendance. I think it's only like it's like 3,400, but I'll fact check that. Okay, um, but it's. It's a beautiful theater, but the amount of coverage was insane, dude. Like, it's interesting because like you don't think about it, but when you're watching like factual, like you know, you're watching the AFL or something, and you forget how much work has to eight go to into twelve thousand people. Eight to twelve thousand. <laughs> That's a lot of seats. No, but you forget about how much orchestration goes into shooting. Mm. Yeah, something like an AFL game if you're watching, or any sports in yeah. particular. Like how many cameras they have set up? The live commentary. You have the people doing the live cutting back and forth and all that. Like, it's insane. So if you translate that to, to you know, this show, then it kind of makes sense. Oh, yeah, and it's like yeah. you mix it in with the beautiful sound mixing and, mm. the, and the mesmerizing performances. It gets so you lost pretty quickly. This is all one show, yes? Yes. Yeah. It's the 20, 25th anniversary. Show. Yeah, because I was surprised when I was I was watching some stuff with um, Bill Burr, yeah. and he mentioned something. He was mentioning how certain jokes in his in the latest one they shot weren't landing in certain um, places that he would yeah. visit. So there's actually they're actually in a cunny with multiple versions of his stand-up. What, with that one show? Yeah, yeah. So when you're watching his stand-up Whoa. on Netflix, sometimes it cuts to a different version that had like a better audience reaction. That's and that so blew my mind. I was like, wow, I would have never guessed. I don't know. I, that's interesting, right? Because it's like, how do you... F- I guess, obviously, certain things are going to work in different... Uh, areas. Yeah, with certain jokes then, and how localized they are and whatnot. How many stand-up comedy specials do that? And is that yeah. cheating to an extent? I, I, I guess... Hmm. And I'm a fan of Bill Burr, too. Yeah, I yeah, think he's yeah. a very funny comedian. I've, I've even, with some of his apparently weaker specials, still enjoyed them. Right. So, but I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I guess... Hmm, it's You're right, because it's tricky. And like, I kind of... And I was like, I don't even know if I believe that, because... Like, wouldn't the stage and stuff be radically different? Would you be able to pick up? Oh on that? yeah, definitely. Like, like, yeah. and there was, and if I recall with that that special, especially there wasn't a lot of stage dressing. 
right. either. And I think I think part of it was because yeah, he's touring in a different country. He wasn't yeah. doing it in the US. I think yeah, it's weird. I think to your question of is that cheating? I guess yes and no, but also I don't know because the idea the idea of the Netflix special is that it's promoting this you know string of jokes that he's doing you know yeah. this set yeah, yeah. and it's the same jokes. They're just using essentially different takes. Would you find when you watch a stand-up comedy show, you laugh because the audience laughs? Like, I, if Maybe. you're in the show, absolutely. I yeah, think yeah, if, definitely. if the audience laughs, you're more compelled to enjoy and laugh mm-hmm. too. Like, for example, when I saw Book of Mormon a few weeks back, the, some of the jokes that were clearly jokes just weren't landing with the crowd, and right. it makes you not want to laugh as much. Probably it's hard to to confirm that because you're right. You mm. don't really know if you're laughing because there is definitely certain jokes where and it swings both yeah. ways. If yeah. No one laughs, and someone obnoxiously laughs way too loud. Mm. Which uh, James Norton, who was a cameo ghost <laughs> on the show, performs at a local improv comedy show called The Big Hoo Ha. Right. Yeah. Um, and if someone in the crowd is obnoxiously louding, uh, laughing too loud compared to everyone else, they might be laughing at that laugh. Well, it, it's also like it kind of actually takes it detracts from the show just as much as if no one laughs because mm. they're uncomfortably loud compared to the rest of the room's quiet, and then you're just like, okay, settle down, person. <laughs> yeah, I I guess that's that's part of the the thing that goes into the decision making of which shows to cut to. Yeah, because again, I still don't even know if I believe that that's what they did with the Bill Burr show, but it's I just remember reading. Actually, he would uh, reveal that though. Yeah, I guess I guess he just doesn't give a shit. <laughs> That's his personality, I suppose. But yeah, like I said, it's essentially cutting to the best takes. But it's a yeah. different it's a different scenario. This factual. I mean, Jimmy Carr's event. put up specials where mm. it's the best of Jimmy Carr too. Yeah, where he goes from various shows and just does. So that could be essentially be the same thing, I suppose. But I'm guessing in those they are very upfront. If you're watching, well, different it's the versions. best of yeah, exactly sort of thing. Whereas with, with the Bill, Bill Burr, Burr one, it was. It was a titled special, which you yeah. assume is just one show. Mm. Anyway, Jake, what else do you catch this week? Um, so I watched a few things. So I wanted to, before I talk about anything else, I want to talk about the light, which I mentioned last week. So uh, that very was intrigued. very intrigued. No, it was a, it was a local film shot in Kalgoorlie that I remember a couple of years back. I actually uh, donated to their Indiegogo campaign, and they gave me a little special thanks in the credits amongst. Hundreds of other names, so that was fun. <laughs> so how much did they end up raising? I think they raised over, just over nine grand, I believe. So they did pretty well for themselves. And I think that full budget, because they got an IMDb page, that according to that, it's about 15 grand, the full budget. That's exciting. And um, Full feature? F- full feature, definitely. I couldn't get a length on it, but it was sitting there watching. It was like, yeah, this is at least an hour and a half. Um, I really, really liked it. Okay. I thought it was really good. And it, it's good that I could say that without... You know, putting on like a, a fake smile sort of thing, because I think I think it's almost tempting if you go around like, oh, I know the people involved in this, so I helped. You oh, know, I absolutely, I yeah. think that happens every day with especially our own small film and, mm. and even live performance industry here. I feel like we're almost compelled every time we see a performance or a film, we're we're compelled to just yeah. automatically be like, oh, that's good because the person who made it is twenty feet from yeah, us. Yeah, exactly. They come up and go, how? What do you think? What do you think? <laughs> And you're like, ah, oh, I need to still process it. Well, that's the thing. Sometimes it is a processing thing, but sometimes you're right. It's sometimes you don't you don't want to be mean. But I like, I mean, I like the good rule of you know two positives and a and a and a negative in terms of giving feedback. But I was very like, I'm not. I don't want to say pleasantly surprised, but it was it was a big relief 
that I walked out of the theater. And keep in mind, this is this was an event. Like they sold like I think 447 tickets they ultimately sold. So if I'm comparing that to like the premiere that I had earlier this year, which was a smaller event, 50 seat theater, about half the length of of this film of the light, but still comparable in that way you know everyone was like getting dressed up and having a good old time and i was talking to some of the actors who were in it because i knew i knew a few so like um my friend kane uh plays i believe dean in the film and he's he's a bit of the comedy relief but he's as a character he's actually given a bit more to do than that which i was like that's awesome because then i could talk to him about his process after that and i got to shake hands with the director and all that kind of stuff so it was a cool like intimate experience but it was on a way bigger scale it was like the disconnected premiere times 10 yeah, just because of the size of the film, the the amount of people attending, and that that's just, it was a bigger production. You know, more people worked on it than Disconnected, so ultimately more people want to go to that. And it was it was very inspiring to go on to there and be like, "Yep, awesome film, awesome crowd, great night." Yeah, and we and we want to talk about how like great it is to see films like this mm. getting that sort of fanfare because in Perth especially it, it can be a bit of a struggle to try and have this sort of. Uh, film culture yeah. that we're constantly trying to innovate and grow on, but it really is its a real struggle. It's hard. Um, so <laughs> it's to see hard. an event where we need more events like this, we need more uh, films like this coming out, more fifteen, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 features mm. just coming out and stuff like that because they encourage, you know, they encourage more creativity and stuff mm. like that. And success stories like this should motivate us to see more. Absolutely. I mean, it's, and it's a yeah. shame that we only have one of the of this scale yeah. every year at, at yeah. the most, generally. Yeah, exactly. You know, like it just doesn't happen here, unfortunately. It'd be good to see it happen every week, right? Yeah. And you know, fifteen grand is not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things. And I was very pleasantly surprised what they did with that fifteen grand. I was like, wow, you know, that's awesome. And I think it's a shame because it's like at this time. And we're 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 going to look forward to talking about the film of the week later in the show. Mm, yeah, but at this time of the year, we are kind of struggling for new films. I would love yeah. to every week talk about a, a film that was made in WA that came out, you know, on the show. Yeah, as, uh, and be like, hey, this is out in the theater near you. Go check it out. More Nightingale esque films. Yeah, but unfortunately, yeah. this period is just so dry. Yeah, there's just not a lot going on in the major cinemas and Hoyts and what is going on is just, you know, US and international films being imported over here to Australia. Not not a lot of representation. No, exactly. And it's like, and and we're not saying that there isn't any, we're just saying it's very, very hard. You have to look really hard to find that stuff. Absolutely. You you have to go to the, you know, not the smallest of theatres, but, you know, it's like, why can't we have these kind of films at Hoyts all the time? Absolutely. That would be an awesome world to live in. Yeah. So, Yeah. No, I I really I really enjoyed the film, and I would um I would like to touch the director and talk to him a bit more because I thought it was really excellent. I thought I want to give him kudos as well. If anyone who did see the film had really great narrative thrust, which I like to talk about films that kind of like The Dark Knight almost, where it's just, it's it's a it's a catapult, and by by the end by the third act you're just kind of sprinting to the end. And I appreciate films that are able to do that, that keep the pace really well. Um, pretty cool. Done, basically, yeah. I think they're doing another screening before the end of the year. I would love to take you to one. Yeah, I'd love to go because, see it. Um, I was really pleasantly happy. With yeah, no, uh, it's definitely films like that. Are, you gotta, you want to see more because mm-hmm. you want to encourage, like I said, these micro-budget films to mm-hmm. keep, you know, keep seeing them. And keep keep churning them out, yeah. Because it's better that we go 20 bucks into the micro-budget films over the multi-million dollar 
you know, Avengers films. Mm. I'm they sure they have ne- their money. <laughs> they don't need the 20 bucks. This guy does. So. Yeah, exactly. Deserves it. And that's me, 447 tickets sold. Like, that's... How much were tickets? Uh, 20 bucks. So uh, I imagine, without assuming anything, because I don't know where the money's going or anything like that, but it's like, I would love to imagine that that's a fantastic bit of revenue that he can use into a new film. Yeah. I'd I love mean, to hope that that's what's going on with that, because that's awesome. Do a bit of multiplication with that. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, here, we're here dissecting the facts here, the Cinema Sideshow podcast. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, it's really cool that you got to actually check out like one of those sort of... Yeah, it was awesome because, again, it was something that I've been sort of... probably $8,800. There you go. So hopefully a lot of that can go right into another film that, that Zach gets to make. Exactly. It's a, again, it's that thing of like I've been tracking this film for a couple of years now, just having, you know, knowing a couple of mates who are starring in it and, of course, having donated a little bit of money to it, hoping that, you know, I would get some sort of return in the investment. And I was very pleasantly happy. I keep, I keep saying pleasantly happy. I think that's the best way to, to put it. Yeah. So I was... Great result. They say so. So I watched a few other films as well. I'll kind of quickly kind of dive through. I think you've seen the majority, if not all, of these films. Okay. So Big Lebowski. Yes. Finally caught that for the first time. And um, it was awesome. It was dope. I thought it was directed very well. Where's the money, Lebowski? Where's the money, Lebowski? Uh, Coen Brothers did an awesome job. It's hilarious. It is very it funny. laughing my ass off. What is this, 90... 90- I like how much he hates the Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> peaceful easy feelings play he's like no man not the fucking eagles <laughs> i love the eagles i just i love how obviously it's like an absurd thing i i love the idea that the dude or jeff bridges who's fantastic in this i love the idea that in, within the plot he's just he's almost getting bounced around like yeah. bowling pins you know that's kind of yeah a little exactly. tired he's sort of just there along for the ride in a way like i just i love yeah, how obs- it's not even that absurd. Like you obviously have very over-the-top characters involved in the film, but they all they all have their role in just this craziness that keeps brewing throughout the plot, and it just keeps unfolding too. Yeah, it keeps developing. I really like John Goodman in it. Oh, he's brilliant as well, and he's I shut the fuck up, darling. <laughs> I was just gonna say that. I was a little, you know, as much as I love Donny Donny being the 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 bowling pin. I keep, I keep using these bowling analogies. They I mean, the bowling, yeah, it's, it's a big deal. It's appropriate, exactly. Yeah. I love him being the, the the bowling pin within the trio, but without spoiling anything, go watch this film. It's awesome. I was a little dissatisfied with with his not just his the end of his arc, but his, the entirety of his arc. Really? Uh, yeah, I don't know. It just I don't know. It just felt too much like he was in there for a joke, and I feel like you know it's a, it's a great comedy. It does all these awesome things with yeah. with the script that it has and the direction that follows it but i don't know Even smaller characters like philip seymour hoffman oh he's great in he, it he's yeah just so funny they're all great in it yeah. but it was just donnie especially i don't know maybe i just felt bad for him because I, I basically played that character for you <laughs> a month ago <laughs> ronnie and ronnie ronnie and donnie that wasn't even that wasn't, that even, wasn't conscious. even intentional damn yeah. you know what you know what else is really interesting so obviously we have <clears throat> excuse me jesus yep in the film for some reason, without having seen the film, I thought that that was Matthew McConaughey. And I watched it, I'm like, no, that is not Matthew McConaughey. That's John, um, what's his name? Tor, Tor, oh my God, I'm blanking this. I'll check it for you. I've got it written down and I can't, I'm like, I'm staring at the word and I'm just blanking. Totoro, John Totoro, that's it. Um, and he's in like Do the Right Thing and a lot of um, yeah. like Mr. Deeds and all the Adam Sandler films and stuff. This is interesting because he plays uh, Jesus. And apparently... 
he was very upset with how little of a role he played in the full film. And he's writing and directing, I'm not even joking, he's writing and directing a spin-off film called The Jesus Rolls that just premiered at the Rome Film Festival just the other week. To positive reception? I don't know. I I guess so. I don't know. But he wrote and directed himself and it just premiered. That's insane. I was like, what the hell? Like, that blew my mind. Yeah. I don't know. That's pretty crazy. It was weird. I don't know if it had a positive reception. I guess we got to... Interesting to find that one out. Yeah. Speaking of Coen Brothers, I watched Fargo for the first Ooh. time. Holy shit, this film is good. It's pretty good. It's it's so good. It's a similar thing of just like a situation going awry. But yeah. I found it I would it's hard to compare those two films whether they're better or worse because they're they're different films. I you know, Fargo's probably like I enjoyed Fargo, but I don't think mm. it's up there. I've only watched Fargo in the last year too. Like oh, after that's right, yeah. a lot of positive obviously hailed this film is mm-hmm. for the Coen brothers. And I think it was entertaining and it does get deeper and deeper. Like the, and the situation gets more and more fucked. But yeah, I, I think for the most part, I, I, I've enjoyed some of their other films a lot more. Okay. Um, and I'm sure there are a couple I've wanted to do on the podcast. Oh, in absolutely. Future weeks. Yeah. Um, Inside Lewin Davis is one that I really, really enjoyed. And mm-hmm. that's a way more smaller interpersonal film. This film especially, this one's also in the same realm of smaller interpersonal. I'll say this is small enough. Yeah. It's a big enough scope of story, but they treat it small. Yeah. 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 And I I like some of the ideas behind it, but for the most part, yeah. Like, it's it's not up in my face. I I have strange favourites with the Coen Brothers films. I have Inside Lewin Davis, and I really like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Right. I haven't seen either of those. So, and I would love to do one of... Like that one on. The, I'd love for you to check that one out too. I've got them mm. both on Blu-ray. Ah, oh, beautiful. I've got Fargo on Blu-ray too. Uh, I, want, I should go out and buy well, it I have a lot Blu-ray. of Coen Brothers. I just realised um, <laughs> it's all hitting you. And Blood Simple. I've got them all. Yeah, wow. I've got a lot of Coen Brothers. But yeah, no, I I really do enjoy the story. I particularly enjoy uh, Frances McDermott in this film. I want to. I definitely want to talk about him okay. because oh god, she's so fucking good she's in so this quaint. movie. So I. I absolutely adore because I, and we talked about it on the podcast before, I imagine, talked a bit about free billboards outside Epping, uh, Missouri, yeah. which is, I w- I'm still put my foot down saying it's one of my favorite films I've seen in the last 10 years. Yeah. I fucking adore that film and she's incredible in it and I'm glad she got the Oscar for it. Fargo's another film she got an Oscar for and I was, I was so pleasantly surprised to watch this film and realize she got it for almost the exact opposite reason. Yeah, for how she got it in uh, Free Billboards, where she's just this giant tough bitch, you know, and the new version of the vengeful mother. While in this film, she's just a wholesome, sweet lady who just so happens to be a cop and kind of get all these. But she's a Minnesota cop, so right, she's yeah, like yeah. the softest cop on the planet. Uh, the niceties and the yeah. dialogue and stuff. Yeah. And God, I, that scene where she's interviewing those two girls that slept with the criminals. Yeah, I sent that scene to like ten people right after I saw it. I was like, I, I went, I found it on YouTube and sent it to people. I was like, this fucking scene is amazing. <laughs> where they're just like, oh yeah, to each other over and over. I particularly again. <laughs> enjoy William H Macy in this uh, film. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I think his like. Lying to the point of just it just gets worse and worse, and every time he's you great, just, yeah. every time you think he's gonna finally own up, and he keeps lying, is it's hilarious. He's seen with with her as well when she's he kind of explodes at her, and then he then he drives away from the yeah. interview. I thought that that's also a really great scene as well. Yeah, 
Because this is, you're right, this is such an interesting, they take this serious thing of like this, you know, kidnapping, uh, like the wife and all, like this, this is really deeply dark stuff that's seeded into the narrative. But the characters just have this, I wouldn't say wholesome, she's definitely wholesome. He's a bit more on the, the wacky kind of, yeah. uh, I guess, wacky side of things. But I just, I love yeah, I just love that contrast of like such a dark story, but the characters are quite goofy in their own ways. I don't know. I just, I, I really adore that film more than a big Lebowski. I think definitely but... we've got to do a Cohen's Corner, but we've got to put a vote on for it because there's about five films yeah. that could, could like anywhere between Raising Arizona and yeah, and, yeah. You know, there's so many we could pick from. It's so... the same with Kubrick. We've already picked our Kubrick film though. Yeah, yeah. So we won't spoil so, that for a while, but but it works well with Tarantino, so we should do another poll. Yeah, Paul's a good idea, actually, for, for Conan. Cohen's, yeah. Cohen, I can pronounce stuff. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> there was an interesting quote before we move on from Joel. He's the director. And that was the thing I didn't realize is that Joel actually tends to direct more yeah. so than two of them together directing. But there was a quote because I didn't realize that this story is sort of based on a sort of true story. Ethan writes, doesn't he, generally? or is uh, he... I think they both write or they both produce. So I think they just kind of have a mixed bag. You're probably yeah. right on that. But Joel tends to direct, although I think they both directed the um, their previous film, the one on Netflix right mm. now, Ballad of Buster Scrubs. Yes. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, here's here's the quote, because I thought it was interesting. They talk about it being based on a true story, and then it sounds like they were backstepping on it then kind of went back to it. So the basic events are the same as in the real case, but the characterizations are fully imagined. If an audience believes that something is based on a real event, it gives you permission to do things they might otherwise not accept. So that was just an interesting thing he said about the 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 based on true events ness of this film. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did you catch anything else, Zeke? From Fargo or? Uh, I mean, just in the past well, week. I mean, I've got a few more. Much I just like I enjoyed uh, the cinematography in Fargo, I actually managed to catch another film that is both equally beautiful for a totally different reason. Mm. Where Fargo has barren snow wastelands. Right, right. Brooklyn. Talk Brooklyn brings out the beauty in the city, and well, we'll contrasts it with the Irish countryside. Now, mm. Brooklyn is a film that I was aware of, but had no motivation to watch. Okay, until uh, yeah, Sarah coerced it, <laughs> and she was right too because this is a film that was actually beautiful, dude. It's it's like, really it follows a young Irish immigrant uh, who goes over to Brooklyn in right. New York by herself and falls in love with an Italian man. And it's sort of playing on the American dream and the whole first, like, that 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 flurry of immigrants that came in the 40s and the 50s, mm. particularly the 50s post-war. Um, and it sort of plays on that, the, the idea of the, the American dream, like starting a new life and finding yep. your way. And this is what a lot of Irish and Italian people did in that time. And yeah, cinematically, extra- I think it did get nominated, if I recall, for uh, best cinematography. Nice. It definitely it's got nominations at the Baftas and Academy Award for best actress. So ah, it there you definitely go. got a lot of uh, nods. If I'm having a look, awards right now. recognition. Haha. <laughs> um, great film. Very small budget, only eleven million. Oof. Yeah, <laughs> we're just talking about fifteen grand. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, eleven million. No, but you're right. That is still for a small an budget. Oscar film. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good that's point. That's pretty hectic. Yeah. Um, uh, and yeah, no, just a fantastic film. That the lead actress, she was amazing in it. Um, I found myself very entertained throughout. 
I do like myself a good romance film if it's justified. And right, yeah. this one had some uh, good good workarounds for the budget restriction, if I think about okay. it. Okay. What do you mean in what ways? Like we got to think that it's period, right? So it's mm. 1950s, so $11 million for a 1950s film. That's pretty ambitious. There was some, some janky-looking green screen at some oh, points, no. which did take away, particularly when they were on the boat. They were on the yep. deck of a boat, and you were like, nah, that's totally a green <laughs> screen. Um, and there was some stuff on a tram that I thought was a little bit odd-looking. That was probably rear projection, but that's just my speculation. Uh, but... Just Overall, very entertaining film. Some great nice. uh, people were in it. Uh, Jim Broadbent is in it. Uh, who most people? I feel like I know a Broadbent. What Jim Broadbent? Not not Jim specifically, but no, I feel uh, like I know a Broadbent uh, like locally. I'll just quickly check the cast, but if I recall correctly, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty it's a pretty strong cast. Some really strong Irish and British names in there. Mm. Um, if uh, that Dommel Gleeson is in it. The dude who um, plays Hawks in Star Wars. Right, 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 yeah. right. He's the, yeah. the ginger bike. <laughs> and like I said, Jim Broadbent and uh, Julie Walters and, and stuff like that. So nice. some strong British names in there. Good film. I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. Might Back check to it you, out Jack. Then. Back to me, Jack. Um, no, I'll have to check that out. A couple of other things I caught on. I'll speed through these again. So... Uh, the Life Aquatic Steve Zizu or Zizzo. What to watch this? Yeah, so you told me this is James's favorite Wes Anderson film. You are correct. Whew, that is an interesting choice. Look, I I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was stylistically quite incoherent. Interesting. Like there were points when it felt like a Wes Anderson film. You know, your symmetry and the the, the very specific camera work with the performances and stuff like that. Like the gliding camera. Yeah, yeah. You know, or just um, it was actually some great stuff where. It's on a boat, so there are shots where the camera's kind of stationed on this rig that's going across the entire boat, but it's all it's on two D. It's basically two D, and it's okay. like you, it's it almost feels like the set was made of paper shade during some of these really like shots, but they 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 just worked really well, and like that's his kind of style right there. But then every now and then it was juxtaposed with something that felt a bit more like Bottle Rocket or not an Anderson film, but you know the Happy New Year Colin Burstead that came out not too long ago. Um, where it was just the the editing and the handheld camera and everything, it just felt a bit more grounded and uh, less kind of like the style was less obvious in these scenes. And I just found it jarring. Like it can work in times. I just thought it was just too jarring for me to to get into it. But yeah, like otherwise, like the color work is amazing. The cast, the cast is insane in this. I'm just having a look at it right now. As yeah, per- read out the cast. It's just this insane. Yeah, it's uh, so you got Bill Murray in typical uh, Wes Anderson fashion. We've got Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Kate Blanchett. Yep. Uh, you got Dumbledore Willem in Defoe, there. Jeff Goldblum, Michael Gambon. Yep. Yeah, it's That's crazy. Insane. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Yeah, the cast is amazing. I love I love Willem Dafoe because he puts on like a really heavy accent in it as well. But he's kind of playing this more shyish character who's always, you know, the second or third tier. Yeah, in the in the boat crew sort of thing. I know it's meant to be more like Moby Dick. It actually reminded me of King Kong in a lot of ways, of okay. like this crew trying to hunt down this, this creature essentially. And obviously, it, it deviates from the King Kong third act, but I don't know, it just reminded me of that, and I thought it was quite funny. So I, I, I recommend you give it a watch. Yeah, give it a watch. It was interesting. Hasn't got the best rating on Rotten Tomatoes, sitting at fifty six percent right now. I think it got mixed reviews, and over time, it got it's cult following, but. 
Um, I was a little surprised by the mixed reviews because, like, this is still a very well-made film, even though it's a little earlier in his in his um, repertoire, if you will. Well, he also came off the Royal Tenenbaums, if I'm correct. Mm, I think that was before you're right. Yes. Uh, I'll just quickly, yeah. And then, obviously, well before, like, Fantastic Mr. Fox. Grand yeah, Port 2001, Hotel, that kind of which is one of his films that is probably more, definitely way more uh, critically acclaimed. Mm. So Yeah, I can understand why this... Again, it's it's Anderson's not always the critic's favorite person, to right. be fair, because of his kind of janky and a little bit more unique style. But that's uh, I don't know. That just sounds ridiculous to me. Like, I feel like film critics would want more interesting films to be made. Um, I don't know, man. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Oh yeah, there were two other things I watched. So I watched okay. adaptation. Oh, so Spike uh, Jones? Yeah, goes back to Spike Jones. It's his second film. And the reason I was meant to watch John Malkovich before that, but the DVD kept stuffing up. So oh. I couldn't even get to the movie. I couldn't even get to the menu. So I was like, ah, screw it. I'll just jump ahead and watch Adaptation. And I actually really liked it. Really? I was never a big fan of it. I just thought it was quite clever. It, it does the stranger than fiction thing, which is funny because they both have Maggie uh, Gyllenhaal in it. They do. Gyllenhaal, Gyllenhaal, whatever. <laughs> I should notice by now. <laughs> Uh, and they have like the unique, interesting, like the voiceover or the yeah. way it, it approaches voiceover. Um, I think Stranger Than Fiction, I don't think it's necessarily much smarter than this film, is it? But I found this film much more interesting because it actually has a bit of a rooted uh, meta story behind mm. it. So you have, um, what's his name again? The writer, who's basically the main character of the film. Oh, well, played by Charlie. Nicolas Cage. Uh, yeah. Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman, thank you. Yeah, played by Nicolas Cage, but it's about the writer. Yes. And it's about him having writer's block for writing the real adaptation of the real um, The Awkward Thief. Yes. And I when I, re- I didn't know that until after the film. I was like, wow, that kind of blew my mind that this was all like a real Pretty cool, reaction. Right? Yeah, it was awesome. And I was like, wow, that kind of just bumps my mark up a little higher because I didn't even pick up into that. Very it's a strange clever. film, how he goes from that to her, though. Like mm. the, I mean, the I'm glad he made Jones that transition. Goes with even things like where the wild things are. Like, what a strange roller coaster of films. Yeah, between the the three I've seen, I've seen those three features. Haven't yep. seen John Malkovich yet. Although I love there's a little cheeky nod to it at the start. Um, but out of those three films, you're right. The where the wild things are is definitely the most deviated um, thing. But this this also feels more like Kaufman's film than than Jones's film almost because from the yeah. writing standpoint, it's so important. While yes. with her, it was written and directed by him. It is true. So, um, I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting. I really enjoyed the film. I just thought Matt, that was quite clever. And it, it goes even a step further than Stranger Than Fiction, even though it came out earlier. But it goes further because of the real life kind of yeah. ramifications, what happened behind it. And the other thing I watched, and we won't get into it too much this week, watch BoJack Season 6A, I like to call it. 6A. The first eight of 16 episodes. just call it Season 6 and then call the next one Season 7? I don't know. They're doing the Breaking Bad thing. I hate it. Yeah, it's so it's, annoying. It, it is makes, annoying. It makes citing it very hard. Well, so I watched it, and for those who know, I'm I'm a gigantic BoJack fanboy. We both are. Probably, I'm not on the same level of view, I don't right. think. Well, I, I really like BoJack. You only started watching it a few months ago. so. Oh, yeah. I pumped through yep. all the seasons mm. in the last few months over the course of this podcast, really. Yeah. No, so, it was great to have that little journey on the podcast to hear you go through season one, two, three, four, five, and now six. You haven't seen this yet, have you? I haven't started. So I even probably, if I wanted to, 
I sorry. I will definitely have it done by next week. Sweet. You said you hadn't started. I haven't started. Okay, cool. I plan on starting hopefully tonight or tomorrow. Yeah. Um. It definitely feels like half a season. And even if I wanted to spoil what happens, I can't because you haven't seen it. So we're giving you guys to next week. Next week we're going to go into spoilers for season six. So yeah, catch up if you care about that. Yes, which uh, for what Netflix's longest running original show. Oh wow! I guess it would be yeah. Uh yeah, it would be. Yeah, because it was early. It was 2014, and they didn't. <laughs> I haven't been cancelled till now, but. <laughs> so they've got, and uh, as soon as the second half comes out, it definitely will be the longest running. Yeah. For sure. So uh, give it a watch. If not, we'll obviously go into spoilers next week. We'll designate areas for when we're talking yep. about spoilers as per the norm. I'm really excited for you to watch it because there are some. I talked to you, I talked to you about it when I was six episodes in, and I was saying like, mm, I, 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 I can so definitely. Eight. There are eight. There's episodes. eight uh, for each half season. So I was six in when I was talking to you last, and I said like, oh, you know, I'm not really, not that I wasn't sure, like I was enjoying what I was watching, but it was like, it just, it doesn't feel as fulfilling as a normal season does. It feels like the arcs are not as well, which is fair because it literally is half a season. Yeah. But I was like, I was just kind of disappointed with the way I was going because I was like, oh, it just feels, that's what it is. And then I watched seven and eight and I messaged you and I was like, holy fuck. Because without spoiling anything, they do some stuff in those two episodes. First off, the cliffhanger is balls. Yes. I'm so angry that we have to wait three months <laughs> based on that clip out. I'm so angry about that. But that's okay. That's what they want to do. Um, but some of the stuff they do in those last two episodes is just for someone for like me and especially someone like Jesse who was with the show from the very beginning and I, and hopefully as usual, I hope you have a similar effect that I did in that some of the character stuff that happens towards the end is just so... Uh, like it just it's so respectful of the arcs that they've had so far. I think it comes back to we've all had three different viewing experiences mm. from the three, like from you, myself, and Jesse. Yeah. And I found, as I've talked about every season on the show, while we've done the show, I did feel satisfaction for right. their arcs and the journeys they went on and how I actually get attached to characters because that show is very well written and allows mm. you to get attached to characters and make you want to see characters get better or and such. And, and yeah, I really like the show. I'm hoping I have the same effect. I think if it's anything like the Breaking Bad, like way they structure it or what happens in those last right, two episodes. Right. Gotcha. Uh, the way I watched Breaking Bad, as they talked about in the El Camino episode, was... You watched it week to week. Yeah. You poor bastard. <laughs> So I watched, yeah, yeah, I had to power through. I came back for the second 6B yeah. season or 6, no, 5B. It was 5B or 6. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, like I was in that position. So if that's anything like this one, at least we don't have to I wait too will be furiated. Yeah, at least, at least this is only three months. It's not a whole year. It's true. So there's that, there's that. But, oh, man, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Cool. So... No worries. Do you want to move into... You got anything to add to career um, section before we... I might as well... I wasn't going to say anything, but I did tease at the start that I, I guest started on a, a podcast. Let's see how we get there with Brock and Joe Ash. So go on, that's also on Spotify. I, I don't even know... If, did I mention this in the last show? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, well, um, that's why I teased our little Sum 41 discussion earlier. So if you want to see me talk a bit about music and other random shit and, and really weird practical jokes about being being naked in front of ex-girlfriends, go to that show. 
because it's all in there. Oh, dramas. Well, then we'll move into our film of the week because we don't talk <laughs> about that stuff on this show. Oh, no. Jake, what are we watching? That's such a shame. We're watching Trumbo. I love our country, and it's a good government, but anything could be better. You talk like a radical, but you live like a rich guy. It's the perfect combination. The radical may fight the purity of Jesus, but the rich guy wins with the cunning of Satan. In 1947, successful screenwriter Dalton Trumbo and other Hollywood figures get blacklisted for their political beliefs. Oh, those bastards. I know. (laughs) Well, this film is a film directed by... Jay Roach. Thank you for listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, obviously, uh, we are big fans of Brian Cranston in particular for our love of Breaking Bad. Yeah. And this film came, what, not long after uh, about, uh, about Breaking Bad? two years in change after the finale. Well, so not Breaking long. Bad finishing. 2013, yeah. What? Yeah, That's man. That was crazy, man. Yeah. So this is probably the thing that he did. After rapping on Breaking Bad, I'd assume. I think, yeah, I'm trying to think of what he did between this and that. I'm pretty sure he did his Broadway thing with, um, gosh, I'm forget, one of the presidents. I'm forgetting his name. It was All The Way. That was the name of the production. I think yeah. he did that, and I, I guess he did Godzilla before this, based on the timing, and then I guess he jumped right into the trombone. Gotta love Godzilla. He's 20 minutes in Godzilla. <laughs> He doesn't get off the, I haven't Such seen it. Such a selling point. They like sold him so hard in the trailers yeah. and he dies after 20 minutes. Well, it's funny because I haven't seen that film in full because I just stopped watching after he died because <laughs> I stopped caring. That's fair enough, man. Oh, well, man. this film's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's a, it's, it is a drama, but at the same time, it's, it is a, it is, like I said, it's a lot of fun. I remember watching this not like not long over a year ago mm. and enjoying it. It was an easy watch. Yeah, it's quite enjoyable. Like, it doesn't take the ideas, some really black, dark ideas. Oh, yeah. It doesn't take them that far in in terms of, like, wrapping it into an enjoyable, digestible film, if you will. Huge cast. Huge cast. Oh, my I'm, God. I'm looking at it right now. And yeah. I'm like, damn, that is, that is a cast and a half. That is a damn fine cast. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, like, just recalling, just by looking at the cast, some of my favourite scenes, which I'm sorry we'll talk about over the course of this conversation, mm. with some of these cast members in particular. But, I mean, I think the first point to address is Brian Cranston, because he did... He got nominated. Nominated for this. He lost to Leo, unfortunately, but... Tough year. Yeah, it was a very tough year. Yeah. That was, a, that was a horrible year. I was so... Oh, man. Oh, yeah. I mean, especially after Leo got... Killed by a bear. Well, supposedly <laughs> well, got robbed the year before with Wolf uh, of Wall Street. Uh, who who beat him in that? Matthew Wolf McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club. Because mm, I've seen both those films. That's a tough one. That is a tough one. I feel like I'd give it to Leo, personally. I think McConaughey has had some great films. I'm not sure. I can't remember. I haven't revisited Dallas Buyers Club. I only watched it once. I only really am motivated to watch it once, right. to be honest. Um, the Revenant, on the other hand... I could rewatch that again and again and again. Right. I'd be entertained gotcha. by it. I think that film is incredible. And just bad break, because I reckon he probably would have had a better chance the year before with against Dallas Buyers Club and Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, he's Matt Cranston? Yeah. Yeah? I think he would I, have I just can't believe it came out that late, Dal- about Dallas Buyers Club, I mean. Yeah. I mean, there are always yeah. going to be Oscar snubs. Um, there's there's plenty of talk of certain films that one didn't even get nominated. Mm. I remember one of the biggest uh, snubs I can remember in recent memory, or at least the last decade, was The Grey, 
Oh, which yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've caught, Jake. I've never seen it, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, that film missed out on Oscar season, Oscar selection season, and was meant to be launched in the prime of Oscar season. But due to, I think they had a problem with uh, the film being transferred to its final, like, like getting converted into a okay. a, a DCP. Is that yeah, the correct DCP term? Would, yeah, um, referring to. It had an accident and they lost it for a while and it actually had the to delay. film? Yeah, they had to delay the release date for like a month and it oh made it goodness. miss out. And because then it was in the dry spell of post-Oscars when it came out. And people it forgot about it the next by the time year. the year that came out. And that I was a be- re- that's fascinating. It is a very fascinating sort of uh, little thing I read on because I was wondering, why didn't this get nominated? Because it was in yeah. a really dry year too for the mm. Oscars. It was up against the War Horse and stuff like that. <laughs> 2012, I recall. <laughs> I think 2012 was a really bad year for Best Picture nominees. Right. Uh, well, to, take, to take it back to Trumbo. Yes. For a sorry, moment. picking apart. <laughs> no, I mean, the Oscars does play a part it in does, Trumbo. Ah, that's a good point. That's a big point. I like yes. that. Well, I'll, I'll quickly talk. I, I know you're looking it up now. I'll quickly talk about the reason we picked this film and the reason we're doing the film that we're doing next week, next week, is for one of our final assignments for our uni classes, we had to write an essay about screen theories attached to a film. Correct. And mine was to do with uh, cinematic apparatus or apparatus theory with Trumbo. Correct. And uh, we're going to find out what Zeke's film was next Ooh. week or at the end of this show. Yes. But uh, yeah, so I wanted to throw that's why we're doing this film and we're going to have a bit of interesting stuff to talk mm. about. To clarify, the nominees yep. for the 2012 picture, I was correct. Not a good year. Uh, The Descendants, Moneyball, Tree of Life, Artist, Midnight Paris, Hugo, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, War Horse and the Help. That Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close sucks. I've watched that film. That's weird That is not a good film. It's about Um, 9-11. But it's not good. There are better 9-11 films out there. Yeah, I can imagine. War Horse, didn't care for it. The Help, didn't care for it. Haven't seen Hugo. Do like Midnight... I really do like Hugo. I like Midnight Paris. But that's not Paris. a best picture. I, we've discussed mm. having that on the, a week on the show. The Artists Haven't Seen, French Film, Tree of Life, I did not like at all. I remember watching that half of that. And that's being not so that Eddie bored. Murphy film where he talks a lot. No, it? that's no. that one where it's like one of those like... Alt, like, like uh, what do they call them? Poetic films or whatever. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, Give me a look right now. Moneyball yeah, yeah, yeah. is like, okay... I don't really care for Moneyball that much. I've mm. watched it twice, and it's all right. Descendants, it's all right too. It's it's fine. Both films, there's nothing essentially wrong with them. Are they best picture nominees? Not really. Right. So the grey could have easily been slotted in there quite easily. And honestly, against that pool, had a pretty good chance. Yeah, that's fair. The Help. When was the last time you watched The Help? I, I don't know. This reminds me of the the voice bite or the sound bite in um Gary's mod. When someone's just like, help! Yeah. So, uh, not know. a good pull, honestly. All those <laughs> films go from being adequate to kind of meh to kind of crap. Right, gotcha. So, bit of a snub, but... Bit of a snub, but it is what it is. It is what it is. Well, but... that was the only Oscar nomination that this film got, was for Cranston's performance. It didn't get anything to do with the writing or directing or anything like that, which is a little surprising to me. Like, not even best production design or anything like that. Especially given the budget. Yeah, so Once what was again, it again? We, 15 million? 15 million. So it comes yep. back to the Brooklyn thing I was telling you about. This one's also set generally in the main, in the mid-50s. 40s to 70s, very early 70s, yes, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah with, but I feel like a lot of the big plot happens in the 50s, 60s, right? Yep, like yep, the yep. meat of the blacklist stuff is yeah, the I'll 50s, say so, 60s. Yeah. And uh, particularly in that John Wayne era. Mm. 
and uh, who plays a pretty critical part in this film. Uh, for $15 million, that's pretty impressive. Like, Brooklyn was only $11 million, also managed to do it really well. So, yeah, I'd say part of production design should not necessarily be the grandiose beauty of production design. It should also be the lack of monetary funding and what you can do with it, I feel. Well, I mean, I think that goes to more of an internal industry thing, more so than, like, the general populace and how they perceive production design or the mise-en-scene of, of what they're seeing. I think if but, you can make something look really good or make a period piece pop with a low budget, I mean, that's... You really only get industry people pointing that out but or appreciating that. But isn't wouldn't you argue the Oscars are partially an oh, industry? Oh, for the Oscars, award? sure. But yeah. I don't I don't know how much. It, just, it depends, I guess. Well, you're talking about the nominations and you're mm. surprised this didn't get nominated for a production design thing. And my point would be that it should have been acknowledged for Because it has got very good production design. Yeah. Uh, it should have been acknowledged for it, given the, the limitation of budget. Because... I mean, it comes back to things like uh, what Black Panther won best mm. costume design, correct? Yeah, Black but Panther that was, also uh, had a budget of <laughs> what 150 million. Yeah. And it's we like, can get into all the political spiel about Black Panthers. Yet the favorite had a budget of what 30 million right. or something like that. Like, oh, won, which man. which one had like which one did you enjoy more? Which right, one popped yeah. your eye more? Which mm. one would have been potentially more challenging given the budget? I feel like production design should have a budget consideration into it. Right, right. Just maybe not to the specific detail of how much was production design given, but just you knew the budget for this film in its entirety was $15 million, and a lot of that budget goes to location, mm. design, production design, set design. So it's, it's a tricky argument, I guess. It just it, depends on the voters, I suppose. Yeah. Do, I, yeah. Think, do I think direction should have been acknowledged? I think direction's fine. I don't think it's... Yeah, I mean, this is. I think this, this is the same guy who did a bunch of Austin Powers films, I believe. Oh, check um, it. Jay Roach. Yeah, we can double check that. I think he's got a new film that's actually coming out in a couple of months, in like December of this year. And I think that's his first film since Trumbo, which is 2015. So it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. To be fair. Um, yeah, I don't know. I really. I've seen. I saw this film for the first time a few years ago. I really. I mean, I really enjoy it. Evidently, I decided to write my essay on it. I've seen it multiple times. I actually didn't even feel the need to rewatch it in the last week because I'm just so familiar with the film and the material. He's the Meet the Fockers guy. That's right. I do remember that. I remember reading that. That's that's crazy. So this is like a Green Book esque sort of uh, turnaround for this yeah, director. Yeah, in a sense, I, you know, it does kind of remind me in, in the sense of Green Book. And we were talking about this just before the podcast. We can elaborate now in terms of biopics and how this would stands amongst other biopics yeah i mean this this definitely has the green book sort of vibe to it it's a mm. film that uh is a biopic yeah uh sort of has not as on the nose message as green book probably has it's a little more subtle and a little more dire than and green honestly book. a little bit more entertaining yeah for the most part i find this film incredibly fun to watch it's kind of how I feel about the founder too. I think both right, films yeah. keep me with That's that dynamic well. sort of entertaining beats that I really yeah. like. Which is interesting because this film, I wouldn't call it out for it's like very on the beat editing, but you're no. right in terms of like tonally, it's just entertaining and the performances are so great as well. It's just, it's infinitively watchable. I, I mean, Jake, like. if you think about the concept of the film, it's, it's about a guy who gets blacklisted and he's a writer, but yeah. for the most part, like it's a lot of talking so how do you make very talky yeah yeah and much like the founder is a film about a dude who 
uh, founded McDonald's. Mm. Like, how do you make the idea of watching burgers be cooked dynamic? And I feel like the founder does it really well, and I feel like Trumbo does it really well. You're making a guy who is put on a blacklist and then goes under a, a whole different alias to write films yeah. and then leading Tim winning an Oscar that he can no longer claim. Twice, yeah. yeah. Twice. Um, <laughs> you know, how do you make that dynamic? And I think this film hits some editorial beats, some good music cues, and honestly, really punchy writing to keep it interesting. Yeah, that. I mean, that's very meta in its own term, is let's talk about the writing a bit. Because yep. I, mean, I mean, the dialogue's great. It does its service. Everyone's witty because it makes sense. Be there were really writers. Bad for it. Yeah, I was going to say it'd be yeah. really bad for a film about a screenwriter to have a really bad script. <laughs> well, it's funny because I've read reviews and people have made that joke of like, oh, it's not as well written as the films that it's talking about. Sort of, which, you know, it's like, okay, well, I'm sure, whatever, fine. These are classics, but it's like, I still think this, you're right. It's very, I think all the witticisms in the film are very justified. There's only one scene I would point out and say, oh, that feels a little phony or fakey or over mm-hmm. the top. There's one scene when um, it's Dalton Trumbo. He's talking to Arlen, played by Louis C.K., mm-hmm. who's got cancer in the film. He's kind of going for treatment. There's one scene where they're in a hospital bed and they're just having this small back and forth. It's a small scene. That's like the one scene where it just they keep trying to up one each other in mm-hmm. like, oh, like a witty response. And that that's the only scene where I was like, okay, I could, the screenwriter feels like he's trying too hard, which I should mention written by... John McNamara? McNamara. McNamara. Oh, it's an MC. Sorry, I misspelled that. Uh, I misread it in my head. Yeah. Sorry about that. But no, that um, I feel like that's the only scene where I felt like he was trying a little too hard. I feel every other scene in the film feels quite naturally mm-hmm. full of wit and clean dialogue, and it all makes sense. Because you're right. These are writers. They should have the witticisms that we expect these writers to have. Yeah. I, 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 I think it's funny. Um, definitely... On my second viewing, I, I've I've noted that I really did draw a lot of parallels with Green Book's similar style mm. and beats. Uh, this one, like I said, not as much on the nose, but is about someone who gets ostracized from society and mm. and works their way around it or finds solace in their ostracism, I guess. But um, yeah, this one, and they both have really strong provocative moments in their film where this one happens in the climax of the film where Trumbo's giving a speech at the end of the film. Yeah. Um, and like the good night and good luck final speech almost. Huge. Reminded yeah, me exactly, of that. Exactly. Yeah. And um, Green Book has that really provocative middle point between uh, Viggo Mortensen's character mm. and Mushala Ali, if I recall. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Um, and <laughs> when they talk, great when he talks about the show, I know when he talks about <laughs> being ostracized from his own people and and the white right, people, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very like, and it's in the rain, and it's very dramatic, yeah. and it's very like, <laughs> like remember the Titans, dramatic over the topness. But this film's a little bit more subtle than I think Green Book is. Um, and but yeah, no, I I still enjoy the the big things I noted were witty, much more witty dialogue, mm. but. Nothing too crazy with the camera, in my opinion. Nothing like that really stood out to yeah, me. Yeah, it's very naturalistic. It's not. It's not trying to impress you with visuals or anything like that. Exact same with the founder. It's like it's yeah, funny. I've way. watched all three films in relatively short succession because they have a lot of sort of lower end but witty bud like lower end yeah, yeah, budgets, yeah. witty dialogue. And good performances from really good actors mm. who are looking for, honestly, probably an Oscar nod. Is that kind of the, the secret flavour in the soup 
that they're looking for, really? I think so. I think all of, like, you really got to look at it. It's like, you look at the founder, you've got Michael Keaton, you've got Green Book, you've got um, Rishafa Ali and Viggo Mortensen, who... They're both in, fantastic, yeah. Fantastic actors. And, of course, you've got Brian Cranston in this one. Not to mention, like, you know, things like John Goodman's with his little... Oh, he's got some great stuff in here. He's got some of the best scenes, which I'll talk about. That's going to be your favourite scene. I know, oh, I know yeah. what, exactly what you're talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think, like, Helen Mirren, and it's like, if you look at the cast and you wonder where... They're clearly not doing this for a lot of money. They're doing it because of the story and the script. Oh, absolutely, and, yeah they'll know a film like this will get recognized just because of the messages and the stuff. This is a perfect example of a, not necessarily an Oscar bait film, but a film that the Oscars do like having just slotted I mean, they in tend the to like films that are about, even though this is a bit challenging some of their ideals in the past, but Hollywood do like films about Hollywood. Yeah. You know? And I mean, yes, challenging the ideas of the past, but this film still deals with the reconciliation at the end. Absolutely. So it shows that Hollywood aren't bad, guys, because they're acknowledging their mistakes. We figured it out, sort of thing. Well, that kind of plays it a bit into my essay. And the entire point, and I'm going to take little bits and pieces from the essay because this is sort of relevant to the discussion, again, with apparatus theory. And ultimately what I was arguing about was that films using apparatus uh, theory and using that to analyze films like Trumbo... Basically, you can cause audiences to rethink their ideological values. Man, I I unlearned the word ideological (laughs) during writing this thing because I said it so many times and now I can't pronounce it anymore. But that was kind of my idea is is bringing forth these um, values and mostly political and challenging them. And I think what this film does in a lot of ways, and I got a quote from Brian Cranston that, that really sums it up. The point of Trumbo is that all opinions are welcome and all opinions should be heard. It's not necessarily denying one way or another. It's not saying that communism is perfect or that if you're a communist, you're evil, mm-hmm. even though that's what a lot of the characters are saying. Yes. But it's it's basically saying that we should all be allowed to have say, which is a nice political message I think we could do it today. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I think this film has some really uh, valid points in it, definitely. Mm. That's, a, that's a great example of one. I mean, he definitely... His character definitely hammers that home, particularly in the hearings that he has to yeah. uh, sit through. Um, because it's funny that a country that prides itself on its free speech was not allowed yeah. to have free speech. And I think it's always interesting when a film like this comes. Well, it's interesting when a film like this comes out because they try and call like not to tie too much to the theories that I've been like looking into, but this is definitely an example of like your classic realist film mm. or your politically cult, you know, political, political realist film, yeah. because it's, this film is, although produced by the Hollywood machine comments on some of the problems with the Hollywood machine. So I find it interesting when films like this come out because I I don't understand why it, particularly the Hollywood system would want to point out how sometimes bigoted uh, the American populace were in the times of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s, where they repressed anyone that had an opinion that wasn't democratic and proud to be American, whereas uh, a group of people were ostracized (laughs) because they had, you know... Uh, slightly different opinions to the to the norm mm. or the big American machine, as per se. But yeah, just interesting to note. Yeah, it's good that they sort of uh, from from in terms of villainizing these people, it's good that they really hammer it in. 
Yeah. And it was interesting because one of the, one of the things I wrote about is in regards to the scene pretty early on when Trumbo is with his family. This is very early, so um, the daughter and oh my god, how am I forgetting her name? I got it on here. Um, I want to say Sarah, but it's not Sarah. <laughs> um, oh, Nick, Nikki. So she's the young daughter who she's the one that kind of grows up the most, mm-hmm. as you see throughout the film. She's very young in the scene, and they're watching a film in the theater, but they're doing the little newsreel prior, and they're talking about how commies are evil. And it's kind of the main setup for this whole political yeah. backdrop of what's going on. And a lot of what I wrote was how, basically, watching a film within a film, which is really confusing, they're using, you know, very uh, sort of Nazi-ish tactics mm. Of you know, communist evil, and then juxtaposing that with you know shots of like tanks rolling in and like wartime stuff and aerial bombings and all this shit, and the fact that the film and Jay Roach directing a film pulls us out of that by first we actually see the the outline of the theater screen, so we know we're watching a film within a film by the framing of that and the fact mm-hmm. that it's in black and white, while the actual film itself is not in black and white, in which color. that goes against Good Night and Good Luck, where that whole film is in black and white. Yeah. While in Trumbo, I think they want to separate that from from the colored scenes so we see trombo in a, in a colored state and then he's obviously yeah. disapproving of the message sort of thing so that that was a lot of the arguments i made into that but it, it, again it hammers in the backdrop of this world and the the political state that these characters are in but yeah i don't know <laughs> well, I've had some uh, fun little facts about trombo oh let's get some facts about you trombo the real life trombo yeah, no, uh, about oh. the film. Oh, okay, okay. So you're going to like this one. Jay mm. Roach claims that many of the scenes featuring Trumbo riding alone in his desk or in the bathtub were completely improvised by Brian Cranston while the camera uh, rolled. That makes sense. And that Cranston was genuinely composing sentences on the page. That, that's awesome. Yeah. I can, yeah, I pretty can totally cool, see that. Pretty cool little things. Some other ones, like uh, Gary Oldman was considered for the role of Dalton Trumbo. Totally can see that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Quite well, easy. he went on to do um, Churchill anyway. Yeah. So he got his uh, biopic. <laughs> so uh, John Goodman actually appeared in a film, a 1989 film called Always that was actually written by the real oh, Dr. Trumbo. Fancy pants. Fun little, uh, little, little tippets. F- yeah, there. little factoids. John Goodman's amazing. Oh, I, he, I, he's so good. I want to meet him. I want to shake his big, gigantic hand. <laughs> I assume he, has a, he always looks... Like he has a gigantic hand. We were just talking about him, Big Lebowski. Exactly. So there you go. Frank King, he plays of the yes. King Brothers Productions. Is it King Brothers? Yeah, yes. King Brothers Productions. It's amazing. That's pretty great. And then they write there. I love the culture that they they bring in the writers because yeah. it's him and he, you know, it's Trumbo and his mates, and they're all writing scripts and they're kind of mass producing these shitty beer films uh, to reproduce. And I'll get into a moment what I wrote from an economical standpoint what they're doing. Uh, which I think is actually really... I think you're really going to like that, actually. But I, I just like the little hub they had, and then when they're talking, it's hi, it's him and um, bloody... I keep forgetting his name. Uh, Arlen. Like, when the two of them are sitting down trying to fix one of the scripts. Yeah. And some, just some of the back and forths they have about storytelling. I just like the meta stuff, but that, that's more of an us thing. I think we appreciate that. I think that so. Because we like to write stuff, so... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can get into the Marxism stuff. Absolutely. Now Perfect. that I kind of took away from it, because basically what I talk about in my third paragraph, I don't want it to feel like a fucking Jake's essay episode. No, <laughs> I think we've already had some good conversation points. You're just cool, driving cool. it with the narrative that is your uh, discussion. The discussion. Well, what I what I wanted to to talk about is basically you have Marx's uh, mode of society, 
as in you have the superstructure and the superstructure determines the economic base. So basically supply and demand in a lot yeah. of ways. And I've, I wrote a bit about how Trumbo in this film pretty much spits in the face of that. Well, he doesn't spit in the face, but he pretty much turns that on its circle, literally. So he changes it from the superstructure being the political hierarchy here of, yeah. of um, you know, Helda Hopper and the column she puts out and, and John Wayne and all these other people who are saying we're not allowed, uh, we're not allowing communists to write scripts or make films in period because the Hollywood 10 includes people who weren't just writers, they were also directors and whatnot. Yeah. So that's another thing I feel like which is good to clarify, but that's the superstructure and they're determining the economic base by not letting them write. So then when they go to King Brothers uh, Productions and start writing B scripts under you know pseudonyms as we talked about and then they start winning Oscars, yeah. that's them literally turning it on around where now the economic base, or in this case, they're basically writing scripts for specific audiences, which goes into what I'm guessing is your favourite scene, oh, yeah. which is which is the... And I'll just take the little quote out of it. We'll talk about it later. A little quote where he makes a job. Uh, John Goodman makes a joke that my, my audience can't read. Yes. But it's like that's such a perfect little nod to... They're making films for audiences that don't care about this political shit. And then through that, they you know, start winning Oscars and then we get to the... And I want to talk about Otto Priminger and, um, gosh, what's his name? Uh, why am I forgetting this? Uh, Kirk Douglas, Spartacus. Yes. When he starts getting the attention of them, that's when they have the power to challenge the superstructure and that's how they ultimately flip it on its head. So if anyone interested in Marxism and all that stuff, I thought that was an interesting way of like, this is how oh. this film does this. I think it's a clever way of looking at this script. I mean, the whole point of uh, screen theory is to enrich your understanding of a film from a different level. Yeah. That'd be a psychoanalytical or Marxist point of view. Yeah. Uh, I think you've done a good job with that one, Jake. Thank you. Well, I might might get a fail. (laughs) We (laughs) we don't know if it's any good or not. (laughs) Did you want um, to move more into highlight scenes? Anything else you'd um, like to add to this film? I think... Uh, I want to talk about two more things. We're really, okay. really with one more big umbrella thing before we get into the yeah, highlights. Absolutely. So I think I want to talk about Trumbo as a as a person, okay, and specifically his family. Yes, because his family play a pretty big role in this film. Oh, hugely integral. And in comparison to something like the founder we talked about, where where um, Michael Michael Keaton's basically yeah, shelves so, his wife. Yeah, basically. Well, you have um, Laura Dern, which I didn't even know that was her until like the m- most recent time yeah. I watched that film. Yeah, she's just, and to be fair, it is part of the plot that he's, you know, ignoring her or that she's kind of pushed away. Yeah. But I just keep noticing Laura Dern in particular getting cast in these roles of like, you know, the wife or the love interest of of the main, the person the biopic's based on just getting shoved to the corner. And it's just, it's like, why are these characters even here? Like, they're in there because it's based on a real event, but yeah, and so I think at the founder, she serves her purpose for the, like, but I get it. It's a tough break yeah, for poor right. Laura Dern. Yeah, yeah. And then she has to go for the same fucking shit in uh, Cold Pursuit, where she gets a nothing role in that. I don't know. That's just what I noticed about her. But the thing, the I reason... I completely forgot you watched Cold Pursuit. Oh, God, it's trash. <laughs> <laughs> the thing, the reason I'm, I'm mentioning this is because I love the way that his family, um, especially his wife and, and Nikki, the, the eldest daughter... The way they're portrayed in this film is well, you wouldn't dare throw Helen Mirren to the side, (laughs) would you? (laughs) But that's the thing. It's like I'm sure a lot of people would throw her to the side. You know, Cold Pursuit's got seventy percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Ah, it's shit. (laughs) It's interesting to me. Uh, Go back to it's one of the it's one of the first digit episodes we did. I talk about Cold Pursuit. I remember. I do not like that film. 
No, but to go back to, and I don't want to make it like, oh, you know, they've done female characters justice, but it's like they did. And I think his family, the entire, the four other members of the Trumbo family have incredible roles in this film. I think they they, they have excellent um, drive in the narrative and their relationship with Trumbo is, I'm just really, really, pre- I just wanted to point it out. I just thought it was really yeah, appreciative that they were able to do oh, that. Even the bits where like they have family meetings on how he's yeah, going to yeah, disperse yeah. the uh, the scripts around and the letters and stuff. It's yeah. perfect. They work like a well-ordered machine. Yeah, they exactly. know when to give him space because he needs to write. You know, there's yeah, yeah. There's a dynamic of this family that they understand uh, how every every cog works with one another. Like yeah. he's a loving father, but he's not directly a loving father mm. as per se. He's, he's the providing father in a way. Yeah, except he's not Walter White, and eventually ruins their lives. <laughs> yeah, he's a provider, but he's not a nurturer. That's left to yeah. often Helen Mirren's character, who's often also the nurturing side that he needs. Yeah, absolutely. Because they do, they have that scene when when they realize that the blacklist is over, and she's like crying, looking into the mirror. But like, there's this like mutual compassion that they're having in that, and I think that I just love that they took it with the family the whole way through. And they even pointed out in the end when they have the the credits of what happens to these real life people, and they mention how she went on to live like twenty or thirty years past Trumbo's death, and she never remarried. Which is just another little interesting tidbit of like, I'm glad yeah. they point out because it just fits everything else about her throughout the film of being committed to the family. Yeah. And despite all the stuff that the Blacklist has brought upon them, they've, you know, prevailed, basically, which is cool. And one and one last thing, I don't, I don't want to be a beat for beat sort of thing, but I, I want to talk about Trumpo as a character, and obviously he's based on a real life person. Yes. It's quite contradictory in a lot of ways, in the sense that he's a communist. But he also, and especially at the start of the film, he owns like a pool. He owns like a big, he, he's the his highest paid uh, writer in Hollywood. I think this gets addressed, doesn't it? It that... does in a way. And that's when, um, all, oh my God, I keep forgetting his name. Um, Arlen, that's the name. Uh, yeah. Arlen, yeah, calls him out on it early in the film. They're kind of looking out mm-hmm. into the field at the house. And he's saying, he's like, are you willing to, to risk it all for this fight? And I, and that's a smart way of addressing that. It's almost a bit ironic the way he lives, but yeah, you're right. It is addressed, and I I, I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting thing that I remember Brian Cranston has gone on record saying like that was an interesting thing to play. It's very well, contradictory. Dynamic, yeah. yeah, dynamic. Cool. All right. Well, I'm happy to jump into highlight scenes if you are. Yeah, oh, you're smiling. <laughs> yeah, I mean my my highlight scene is a scene that I think has been played quite a bit. Um, <laughs> Upon this release, uh, unfortunately for Brian Cranston, my favourite Trumbo scene doesn't, doesn't have Brian Cranston in it. Doesn't have <laughs> Brian Cranston in it. In fact, it has John Goodman at his absolute. And it's so great that you had Big Lebowski in the first half of the show because right, yeah. John Goodman plays a really good angry man <laughs> or a really good menacing man. Yeah, yeah. Like. I mean, I type in Trumbo and I type in John, it just comes up with John Goodman scene. <laughs> and it's the only scene you need to know about. It's the only scene you need to know. And I'm, if I recall, it's to do with uh, a man is investigating. So, yeah, what it is, I believe this is after Roman Holiday. Yes. Or it's, it's a fair way into the blacklist. It's when the Hollywood, the, the superstructure is realized they're hearing the rumors that Dalton yes. Trumbo and several of these blacklist writers are working directly with John Goodman's character. So he comes in and basically tells him to his face, he's like, 
I gotta, I gotta boycott you guys. I gotta put it out in the open, and you know, because Helder Hopper mm. has a big following. Yes. Basically, we're gonna ruin you guys if you keep hiring Dalton Trombo. And Joe Goodman has a response <laughs> to this. He basically <laughs> states that he doesn't give a flying fuck what this guy <laughs> thinks. Grabs a baseball bat, seemingly from out of nowhere, <laughs> and <laughs> proceeds to in his head, yeah. beat the living. Well, he just destroys well, he his own. His, he smashes yeah, his yeah. own office basically and scares the guy off. But his line at the end, where he's like, "I'm only in it for the money and the pussy," is probably the most badass thing. <laughs> he says, I, "Like I'm drowning in both or something like that." Yeah, <laughs> and it's something about John Goodman. I've always wanted to know. I'm I'm going to quickly do some quick research. I want to know how big this man is because the way that. <laughs> Like, I do, yeah, because yeah, yeah. the way that they always frame him, like, we talk about Big Lebowski when he just pulls a gun out from nowhere. <laughs> this man seems to pull yeah. stuff from nowhere. Like, <laughs> it's insane. Like, My favourite part about that scene, even after that scene when he, the guy is threatening, runs out, and then uh, Dalton Trumbo walks past him as almost <laughs> like a final just, yep, he's here, no one gives a shit. And then John Goodman, he, like, throws the bat up in the air yeah. to, like, recatch it, and he's like... The fuck you want <laughs> to trump? Yeah, so it's uh one point <laughs> eight eight. So he's a hundred and eighty eight centimeters. So yeah. he's actually about six centimeters taller than me. I think that's about two inches. I can see than that. Me. I can see that. Um, but big, but he's got the weight as well. Yeah. So just add and to it's that. It's funny because yeah. the Cohen brothers always do a really good job. Especially he has a scene in Oh Brother where out there yeah. where he beats the living crap out of George Clooney and the other two guys. <laughs> And it's so funny because just the way that like they frame scene. him is always so... Me- he just has a menacing presence. Yeah, it's his yeah, voice yeah. meets, like, just, just how he goes from... He has such a nice smile, but when he frowns, he looks scary as fuck. Yeah. <laughs> and that scene, it's just like... I'm not sure who the guy is across from him. I'm watching it right now, and I'm just like... Oh, he he looks like mute. the That's biggest great. nerd on the planet. So Fire Dalton Trumbo. It yeah, so was... So that's awesome. It's the second time I was just laughing, and yeah, you're right. Like the badass, like when Trevor, he's just like, "Who the fuck?" Yeah, <laughs> fuck makes, you he up. makes Walter White look like a pussy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's my oh, answer. What about you, Jake? You know what? I've been thinking about it as you were just saying it because I I didn't write any notes for this for this episode. I tend to write a lot of notes, and I was like, oh, "I'll wing it." I know about this film, but I'm like, "Ooh, I don't know what my favorite scene would be." I didn't want to give a shout. I wouldn't say it's my favorite scene, but to go on. We're not talking about how Trombo's family is a really important part of the. I actually really like the scene where the mum gives Nikki the the boxing gloves as like kind of a stress release method mm. because she's really frustrated for dad and this. Yeah. I really, I, it's it's not my highlight scene, but I, I I thought that was a really great scene. And I was going to give a, th- a shout out to mm. Alan Tudyk in this film. Mm. I find his stuff always very fun and very entertaining. My boy, my boy. I think Alan Tudyk needs to be in more things. I know he's been in a lot of things, but he's often in them as voice actors or Star Wars robots, and I want him to be Star more. Wars I want to see I want to see his face more. He's got a he's I'm looking a, at his face right now. He's just a friendly looking guy. And he's still funny. <laughs> I'm show you the photo I'm looking at right now cuz uh... See? What a friendly looking I, okay, guy. Okay, whatever you say, whatever you say. No worries. Well, that's all I've got to add to well, Trumbo, Jake. I I got to think of a highlight scene. I got to do yes. it. I do want to give a shout out to the later scenes when he's kind of um, flirting around with with Otto and Kirk Douglas. And that's kind of like a big power punch to finally destroy the blacklist is him working on those two massive films. But those scenes are quite funny as well because... It's uh, when Kirk like, is like, oh, I feel like I just walked into my wife mm-hmm. when he's like kind of playing with both of them. And he's like, oh, he told me 
if I keep up this level of work, he'll put my name on his script. When, of course, we know he said that as a joke, uh, how bad of a job yes. he's doing, but he manipulates the two of them, and it just kind of works out really well. I guess, I guess I'd say those collections of scenes I really liked, but I, I really like the whole film. I think mean, it's really, really good. Fun watch. Yeah. No it's worries. awesome. Cool. So that's Trumbo. It came out in 2015. And Brian it's out in wide release. It's currently on Netflix. Really? I think so. I, I watched it on Netflix. Oh, look at that. I, I mean, I have it, so... And like I said, I didn't need to rewatch. I rewatched it. Yep. A couple. Of, oh, wow! I didn't even know that. So there you go. It's on Netflix, guys. You have no excuse now. Yeah. But um, like I said, I rewatched it recently to write the essay, but I didn't feel the need to rewatch in the last week just because I'm I'm quite familiar with the film. Cool. Get it on Netflix, everyone. No worries. Well, Jake, what's yeah. new in theaters this week? Uh, there's a few things. So we saw a trailer a few months back about a movie called Little Monsters. Which yes. I don't remember much about, but it's something to do with like these school kids on some sort of camp or field trip, and then zombies appear, or they become zombies, or so, I don't know. It, look, it looks, it's it's a film looks... that comes out near Halloween, so <laughs> there's that. It's something. It's something. Forty-seven meters down, uncaged. So it was like a sequel to Forty-seven Meters Down. It's another Jaws ripoff. Fifty years. It's about as interesting as watching water. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, water can be interesting, man. It, wa- it weaves, it Not waves, the water it flows. in that film. <laughs> uh, and another one, I know you don't give a shit about, I don't give a shit about either, Terminator Dark Fate. Dude, that was out. bad. Yeah, I I was talking to someone about this the other day, how the effects in Terminator 1 still scared the crap out of me. Like, I know you haven't seen it, but the when you mm. kind of see the final, uh, I guess the final form, you, you know, I'm trying to think of a Dragon Ball Z reference now. I get uh, the fusion or the the final super. I don't know when you see the final form of of Arnie's Terminator in that very first film, still freaks the crap out of me. Mm. Just the way they did the motion and the movement with it, the way it looks, I'm like that freaks me out. Then I look at this new trailer, I'm like, oh, that's CGI. That's not scary. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think it's the it's the hybrid of the two, right? That, mm. that really gets it. Yeah, it's 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 a shame. Well, well. I- Quickly, just uh, sorry. Oh, I keep, make my part. I keep Jake. jumping in your throat. Now, there's uh, a couple of other little things. This stuff's coming to Netflix. A Free Minute Hug is a 30-minute documentary. I think it's like about a reunion with a family, something like that. Uh, little Miss Sumo, which is a 19-minute documentary. And season one of Nowhere Man is coming to Netflix mm. on Thursday. Have so, you catched any of that living with yourself? Poor no, I've been meaning to. Okay. Because I was busy with BoJack, but it keeps coming up on Netflix. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it. I'm going to watch it. Okay. Hopefully next week. Living with yourself, Paul Rudd. Interested in that? Really? I can't say I really care for it. I watched the trailer and I was like, eh. Yeah, oh, fair enough. I think I think I was just intrigued by it. I was like, you know what, Paul Rudd's Paul Rudd. That's I'll, fair enough. I'll take it. So I will try and watch that in the next week or two. But, well, uh, yeah. I guess now we're moving into our film that we are watching Ooh. next week on the show. So this it... week, oh, you're going? I thought no. you were. Oh no! I was just about to say. Well, my essay is on the that's, film that yeah, we're okay, watching that's next what I was week. Say your essay. But Jake, what are we watching? We're watching Silence of the Lambs. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job and never forget what he is. Jodie Foster stars as Clarice, a top student at the FBI's training academy. Jack Crawford wants Clarice to interview Dr. Hannibal Lecter, a brilliant psychiatrist who is also a violent psychopath serving life behind bars for various acts of murder and cannibalism. Crawford believes that Lecter may have insight into a case and that Starling, or I should clarify, is Clarice, as an attractive young woman, 
may just be the bait to draw him out. So we've done 41 episodes, and that is by far the <laughs> hardest description we've like ever done. This film was directed by Jonathan Demme, and, I mean, got nominated for a fuck ton of Academy Awards. When, did it uh, win the Big Five? Is that it what? did win the Big Five. It is the last <laughs> film, I'm pretty sure, to win the Big Five. Whoa. So that's uh, Best Picture, Best Directing, uh, Best Star, actor, uh, Best Actor, well, uh, Lead and Supporting, is it? It's uh, Best Picture, Actor, Actress, oh, okay, Director. Yep. And Best Writing. And Writing. Yeah, and, you're right. It's um, I thought it was split between Supporting and Main, but mm-hmm. it's actually split by Gender, not Rank, yes. so to speak. And which Foster wrapped it up, Hopkins wrapped it up, Demi wrapped it up, Ted Talley, the writer, and yeah, the Best Picture. I could say they uh, wrapped him up. This film is an absolute <laughs> banger, and I did it for my essay discussing feminism and screen theory, which Whoa. I will delve into next week on the show. Uh, honestly, yeah. I'm looking forward. I probably actually will give it another watch beforehand. I will also probably be watching another Jodie Foster have film, to, yeah. oh, which okay. I have in mind, oh. which I will tell talk about next week on the show. I haven't watched it in a while, and I want to watch it again. Oh, I love Jodie Foster. Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to read. The first time I saw this was with you. Uh, I mean, you had already seen it, of course. I watched it in first year as part of a lecture, and that was the first time I ever saw it. And then we did a Blue Velvet episode right after that. Yes. So... We probably didn't talk about it much at the time, though. No, so this would be a really good, <laughs> actual, thorough conversation. Yeah, exactly. So I'm looking forward to talking about this next week on the show. Thank you for joining us Woo-hoo. for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with The Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> 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 <laughs>